You're listening to episode 42 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. Tis the season to be jolly, as the old saying goes. I'm not sure Father David would agree with you, though. Over time, he's seen his congregation dwindle and his message of hope and goodwill to all men reach fewer and fewer people. But a well-meaning act of charity in the run-up to Christmas will completely upend his entire existence. As a young couple in desperate need of accommodation enter his home and test not only his patience, but his faith as well. In the grand cinematic tradition of horrible things happening at the most wonderful time of the year, we welcome you to our Yuletide episode on Eric Penikoff's The Leech. Cheers. Our first ever Christmas episode, Wayne. Absolutely. We've released our first episode back in February. Yeah, kill first, list. first yeah, kill list. First week of February we released our first ever episode. Right, Wayne. We started off this podcast with a horror film. Yes. We're potentially ending the year with a horror film. Mm. Everything it, everything comes full circle, doesn't it? What does that say about us? We just <laughs> love the horror films. We do, Wayne. We do. And that is very much in the tradition of what we're speaking about today, so Wayne. Christmas is a perfect time for horror for some reason. Like At some point, directors thought, we're not going to make horror movies at Halloween. We're going to do it at Christmas instead. Mostly so we can have Santa Claus killing people rather than giving them presents. <laughs> <laughs> He's always been a bad man. Why do you think he stole all your milk and cookies? Because <laughs> I'd been naughty that year. Exactly. Lumps of coal, Wayne. <laughs> Is that a saying in America as well for our American listeners? When you, your child's been bad, does he get a lump of coal from Santa? I wonder, is that universal? Because obviously Possibly. all over the world you have different iterations yeah. of St. Nick and Father Christmas, so maybe it is different in some con- other countries. So, Or is it just poor British kids? All he gets a lump <laughs> of coal. And if you're good, you get what well, at least kids used to get an orange. Was that what it was, an orange? Yeah. <laughs> but then hey, you get a, lump, a lump of coal, you can keep your house warm. Well, with our electricity bills, Wayne. Yeah, man. We need yeah. the coal. We, need, we the need, co- need the coal more than the orange. Actually, if Santa brought just like a bag of coal to my house this year, I'd actually be happier. It's no heat. <laughs> it's no heating or it's scurvy. Uh, <laughs> you either freeze to death or you starve. But you either. know, we're, we're talk- jo- jo- jolly way to kick this episode off. We're talking about tradition here, Wayne. And I was looking back into this. I was thinking, okay, did you know, especially over here in the UK, the Xmas spirit. In the Xmas spirit, Christmas spirit, Wayne, ghost stories actually have a Christmas tradition. Going back, not just in films, and I was, there was this piece from the Hollywood Reporter, and I'll quote what they say. Ghost stories were considered an English Christmas tradition, a means to recognise winter as a season of death and decay, along with the new life promised by Christmas and the birth of Christ. Well, that's a very old thing. Like Even in, uh, I think, Egyptian mythology, they had that, like, for example, day and night cycle. So when the day came, that was the, uh, when night came, that was the death. Morning came, it's the rebirth. So here, they're just doing it with the seasons. When it gets to winter, it's cold, the plant life dies off, but then it comes back and rejuvenates in the spring. So I, it, it makes sense. A regeneration. A regeneration. It makes sense you would tell the stories around that time. We're entering a new year, new beginnings, and we're leaving the last one pissed and on the floor. <laughs> exactly. And you talk about ghost stories, those abound around Christmas time. You heard of the legend of Krampus, this monster, this demon that comes along and steals children if they've been naughty. What nation is that? That's, I think it's actually Scandinavian. Scandinavian, it's, I think it's, so. it's European anyway. They've got some dark tales in Scandinavia. They do have some dark tales in Scandinavia. You, you think we're bad in Britain, folks. Mm, yeah. Well. At least Santa just brings you coal, which you can use. Here, he yeah. actually, this thing actually comes and kidnaps Good you. Good old Jolly Saint Nick. <laughs> Jolly Saint Nick the monster. And that was made into a horror film in 2015. Krampus the horror film. You like 
liked it. You it liked was that good. Film. I was surprised to find out so many people and so many critics didn't. I really enjoyed it. It was interesting. It was that the whole premise is this kid is at his home. The family come along for Christmas. The family hate each other. There's all these fallouts, big squabbles. The kid loses his Christmas spirit, and as a result, the house is haunted by the spirit of Krampus, which the family have to fight off. I thought it was very well done. I'm going to, you know, get into that. It is on Netflix, people. Mm. So I think, you know, over this Christmas period, I'm going to sit down, have a Bailey's, (laughs) and watch Krampus. That's what you need to do. I definitely recommend that, because if you look at, you think of Halloween. Halloween is a classic time for making horror films, people running about in masks. It's supposed to be a scary time of year. Christmas is the opposite. And I think, in a way, that's why these films are so successful. You don't expect them. You don't think this holy jolly time of the year and everyone's happy giving gifts, presents, a maniac is going to turn up and slaughter your family. (laughs) But you know, Wayne, this is the season of togetherness, right? Mm, Well, let's build a bridge to our American cousins, Wayne. The first Christmas horror film is a British-American co-production. It was called Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. I heard of that. 1972. (laughs) And do you want to see what the description I found? I think it was IMDb. Uh, Go ahead. A demented widow lures unsuspecting children into her mansion in a bizarre Hansel and Gretel twist. I really, I want to see that now. It takes place over Christmas. It stars, <laughs> I think it was Shelley Winters. Oh, was it? I think so. It's in 1972. <laughs> which, which, the first American, purely American film, 1972 also. Silent Night, Bloody Night. Oh, I've heard of that one as the well. first cinematic Christmas horror in the US. Co-stars, here's an interesting thing, Wayne. It actually ties in yeah. to The House of the Devil. It co-stars in 1972, Mary Warrenov, former Warhol superstar, you know in The House of the Devil, yeah. the babysitter goes to that house, and there's the creepy you know, husband and wife? Yeah. She's the wife. I think we did in our episode discuss that she was like kind of a classic movie star, wasn't she? Yeah. It's interesting what you say, what you say, Silent Night, Bloody Night. Because the titles of horror, Christmas horror films, they very much tie into the spirit. Even the taglines, because there's some Christmas horror films I look up, you get taglines like, you better watch out. One of them was, you better not cry. Another one was, the sleigh ride begins. So they're making puns on Christmas <laughs> It's songs. essentially a lot of puns, because you've got things like, I think, would we agree, one of the best Christmas horror movies we've seen, collectively, would be Black Christmas. You know what, Wayne, right? L- listen to this. I'm going to throw out this little factoid. Many people consider Black Christmas the first slasher. Now, that's just conjecture. We can always find other examples. But you know that film I was saying with Mary Warrenoff, Silent Night, Bloody Night? Do you want to hear the little plot synopsis for that? Now, do you think, when you hear this, this could be a slasher film? I've never seen this film. The plot follows a series of murders that occur in a small England in a small New England town on Christmas Eve after a man inherits a family estate which was once an insane asylum. It does. That sounds, that sounds like a slasher like film. That sounds like some kind of Michael Myers backstory, isn't it? Killing, okay. pe- killing people in a small town. Asylum. The mentally ranged, they escape from some kind of asylum. So why was that not... Do we have to reevaluate Black Christmas now? No, because we've talked about this. Like with Black Christmas, it has a lot of the hallmarks of the slasher film. It's like, yes. when do you get to a film that kind of coalesces everything? Because we've talked about how also how Friday the 13th is recognised as really kicking the genre off. It took what Halloween, you know, gave us and it yeah. made it more formulaic. Exactly. I think it took all of it put it together and then put it out into the mainstream. So that's when people started really recognising it. But things like Black Christmas and Silent Night, Bloody Night, they were definitely the, we'll say, the progenitors of the slasher genre. Which we have to say, Wayne, we are big Black Christmas fans. Absolutely love it, that film. Too good. It's too, can, can a film be too good? 
It is. It's one of those films I watched and I thought, I wish someone had told me about this earlier because it is so well done. It's how it's suspenseful. It's not even that bloody. You genuinely like the characters. You actually want them to survive. They're not just douchebags you can't wait to see killed off. There's a lot of emotional stakes in it as well. Could we say, Wayne, the director of that film, Bob Clark, Bob Clark. is the godfather of Christmas cinema? Because not only did he derange us with Black Christmas, <laughs> he also made the heartwarming, the family film, the Christmas tradition... A Christmas Story. What a range that is as well, going from Black Christmas to a Christmas Story. Complete polar opposites, but based around the same season. And on a side note, also made Porky's. Porky's as well. Okay. I was thinking, do I point out the fact he you also made Porky's? You have to say that, because this guy, <laughs> l- l- let's be honest, he's made probably the high point of Christmas horror. He's also made a family classic in A Christmas Story, a mm-hmm. perennial classic, and... He's kickstarted the whole sex comedy thing. Yeah. Not, so, uh, not the first. But... So at one point, kind of everything he touched turned to gold. But then... He did do Baby Geniuses later on. We don't, we don't mention that, though. <laughs> yeah, look, look, you can't get all of them right. Wayne, Bob Clark had three films. There is nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> That's when his career basically ended, we're going to say. But you were saying, look, why these Christmas films? What is it doing? It is taking these familiarities, these family traditions, and it is subverting them. Gremlin's done this really well, actually. It took the consumerism around Christmas... The very thing you consume becomes a thing what terrorises you. Exactly. I really liked Gremlins. It's one of those debates of what's a Christmas film, because where do you stand on the whole Die Hard is a Christmas film thing? Okay. (laughs) Does a Christmas thing have to have certain traits, or can it just explicitly be based around Christmas time? That's my thing, because Iron Man 3 takes place at Christmas. Does anyone call Iron Man 3 a Christmas film? Maybe. I watched the first Rambo, First Blood, not long ago. When they go, when he goes into the police station, they walk by a Christmas tree. Is Ooh. First Blood a Christmas movie as well? We're plumbing very, very deep wells if we're... I think we're pushing it a little bit. But, you, but I see what you mean. Do you have to have certain traits? Does it need to celebrate the season or be part of the season? Or does it just have to incidentally take place around that time of well, year? Well, I also saw a piece lately saying, is The Hateful Eight a Christmas film? Well, I think people are taking liberties <laughs> with a snowfall. Did they even mention what time of year it was in that? Uh, yeah, I it was, I can't it remember. was snowfall. But it looks like the kind of landscape that just has snow all year round. But around. what was a really controversial Christmas film, Wayne? Can you remember from the 80s, Silent Night, Deadly Night? Not Silent Night, Bloody Night. There is a lot yeah. of these Silent Night. <laughs> Silent Night, Deadly Night. Here's a good tagline, Wayne. It said, you've made it through Halloween, now try and survive Christmas. That is a good tagline. And it actually uses Santa as the killer. Now, hmm. we're not talking the literal Santa. It is a man in a Santa costume. But it's taking the iconography of something wholesome, something, you know, family-friendly. And it is subverting that. I know it was heavily protested, kind of in the way that Maniac was. We talked about yeah. Maniac. Someone once said, the protesting was Silent Night Dead, and it got so ridiculous. You would think that the filmmakers were going into people's houses and kidnapping their children. He said, that's how ridiculous the protesting got. <laughs> Again, is it because you're taking this jolly image this paradigm of giving and love all year round and having him be the killer is that what annoyed people so much i think so i think (laughs) so it's like even gremlins as we were saying that's the film that created the pg-13 was it it is that was i think that was one of the first films to use pg that and uh, temple of doom coincidentally both spielberg films well steven spielberg actually wanted gremlins to be pg-13 because you want to have that extra edge. I think so. I think so. He, you can't sanitize things too much, can you? No, you, you need to have a bit of an edge. I think the sequel lacked that. That's why the sequel wasn't anywhere near as good. But, but if yeah, you th- think these things, Wayne, are stuck in the past, no. <laughs> this very year, Wayne, Violent Night, mm, yeah. Christmas Bloody Christmas, 
And you know the film we're discussing today, The Leech. It was almost like a kind of rebirth, like like oh yeah, we can do Christmas horror films again. Well, this is part of the whole horror renaissance, isn't it? We're we're going through, you know, I I, I would say a golden age of horror again. Yes, we spoke about this in the House of the Devil, I believe. Don't use the term homage. Ty West does not like the term homage. <laughs> <laughs> but it did get me thinking. You know, with all these films when we're, we're discussing. As fucked up as this is, do these films actually, in its own way, represent a truer depiction of Christmas? In a way, yes. If you talk about a film where you have people coming together for Christmas and just not getting along like you did in Krampus, because when you think of Hallmark Christmas movies, everyone's happy, everyone's jolly. It's so unrealistically optimistic. But films like this, yeah, they're dark and they're quite creepy and quite freaky, but in a lot of ways, that's kind of what some people's Christmas is. Well, they're speaking in the abstractions to tell like a deeper truth, aren't they? Now, I'm not saying some look are just A to B genre fair, which there's nothing wrong with that. They're enjoyable. But there is a depth to some of them, which kind of makes you think, okay, they're tapping into the psychology of how we all feel, or most of us feel around Christmas time. Yeah, I'm not saying someone's going to watch a film with a killer Santa and go, oh, I remember that Christmas when Santa came to our house with an axe and tried to murder all of us. Well, you've never lived then, Wayne. (laughs) No, no, no. I I was away. I was out of the country when that happened. Were you the Santa, Wayne? (laughs) Were you the Santa? When a killer came to our village and went killing everybody. But Wayne, you know, we were going on about this. We're going on about these films, and Wayne, the film we are discussing today fits the fucking bill. It's a little beauty, this. It's The Leech, which is a film which I just only came across very, very recently. We thought You're not the only one. Yeah, we thought, well, we're doing a Christmas episode. What do we talk about? We toyed with Black Christmas, but we thought, too many people are doing that. Let's look for something a bit more, not necessarily underground, but a bit less known. Well, it is underground. It was released by Arrow Video. Doesn't really have a cinematic release. Arrow Video coincidentally, are putting out some of the greatest streaming work out there. Cult films, horror films, the works of Jodorowsky, for example. They're varied. And, I mean, I don't know how much stock people have in Quentin Tarantino, but he says it's the only streaming service he had. Or has. Now, interestingly, Arrow refers to this film, because I looked it up on their official page, it refers to it as, quote, agonisingly intense and rib-ticklingly funny. Now, that is a beautiful combination. Great promotional stuff as well. Yeah. Did you see the poster for this it's film? It's good, isn't it? It's so good. It For me, had I don't know about you, but it had kind of a hammer horror look about it with the colour, the imagery, even the font, because the words, the leech, they're kind of oh, twisted, yeah. they're kind of bent. It looks like something you would have seen that would have had Peter Cushing on the front of it, Vincent Price even. It is very good, Wayne. It's got great colour schemes, great design work. It almost looks like an 80s horror paperback. And I think this is what people miss so much, Wayne, with mainstream films. And we often discuss this, and other people often discuss this on the Twitterverse. They're saying posters, the promotional work, isn't up to par anymore. It's very lazy, it's very mundane, it's very just commercial art. Back in the day, you used to have great works of horror artwork for films, for paperback novels, etc. And I think this cover for The Leech is harkening back to that time. And it works so effectively because it's selling you a product before you've seen it. And it's saying, look, we know what you're into and we're going to give you it. Yeah, back from a time where you would genuinely put movie posters on your walls because they look great. Movies that were drawn by people like Drew Struz and ones that had such a distinctive style. Because what I like about this, it's beautiful, but very minimalistic. There's barely any colours. It's just blacks, whites, greens, and reds. Kind of looks like a Christmas tree, the way things are arranged on it. Coloured like one, too. Exactly, but every time I see red in a horror film, I like to call it the Argento Red. Mm. There is something about red that just makes me think of Dario Argento. Yeah, that kind of glow you would have seen in like oh, Suspiria yes. or, or like Tenebrae, which we spoke Tenebrae? about in our, vid- in our video. Even though that was 
filmed vastly different to Suspiria. Very different, different but, look, but yes, it still ties into what we're what we're discussing now. So this is a brand new film, Wayne. It was just released, I think, as of this recording, two, three weeks ago. Very not long ago, yeah. For the Christmas period. It's directed by a filmmaker I also wasn't very familiar with, Eric Pennykoff. Who's actually had quite a few other films. I watched the trailer earlier for a film of his uh, called Sadistic Intentions, his first feature film, which does have some of the similar cast members from this. Yeah, two of the same ones, uh, Jeremy Gardner and Taylor Zodzki, who are husband and wife. Yeah, you think Jeremy Gardner was just uh, born to play a crazy heavy metal musician? He has that look about it, maybe because I've been to heavy metal festivals. He just looks like the kind of guy I would have met there. Maybe why his character in this film felt familiar to me, because I'm like, I'm sure I've met this guy before. (laughs) And what was your experience? It was Matt? very, very crazy. Could you get rid of him? No, because he just hangs around. That's the whole. That's the whole. That, that's the point. That's exactly what he does here. Wayne, yeah, the leech. The leech. <laughs> he is the leech. That film did look good. That really got me interested for watching uh, Sadistic Intentions. I think I'll probably get around to watching that. Soon. Well, it has a great line: "A psychotic musician lures a fellow bandmate, an unsuspected woman, to a remote mansion for a night. A romantic deceit and grinding metal mayhem." <laughs> Grinding Metal Mayhem. Do you know what the trailer made me think of? You know when we did uh, Video Nasty Month yep. and we did Censor as yep. well? feels like the kind of film that parents would have had to keep away for the children at the time because the whole heavy metal is satanic thing. Okay, if, <laughs> if, if The Leech itself was released in the 80s, do you think it would have been a Video Nasty? I, I think, think so. Possibly, With yeah. With the religious overtones, subverting them, perverting them. The idea of corrupting the, the corruption of the yes. soul as well. Ooh. It was about degradation in society because that's why I think this movie works so well. It's kind of evil from yep. the inside. Yes, yes. I would describe so it. Jeremy Gardner, the star of this film, as we've mentioned, I first came to know him through a film he co-directed, when co-directed, After Midnight, mm, yeah. one of the best creature features I've seen in a long time. Is that kind of a slow burn? It looks like more of a slow it's burn. It's a slow film. burn. It's like, this, it's like this film. We're working with minimal budget, so of course it's not CGI heavy. It's a very contained story. It's also a romantic story. It's about this guy essentially in one location and battling whilst his girlfriend has left him. This He thinks there's a monster outside. We don't know if it's psychological, etc. I won't spoil the story for anybody. It's very interesting, very good. If nobody's seen After Midnight, check it out. One of the strongest independent horror films slash creature features I've seen in a long time. I often think that the most effective creature features, the most effective horror films, are largely based around the unknown, what you can't see, because it builds that paranoia, like how Chainsaw Massacre worked, because a lot of the kills were implied, so you were left to fill in the blanks in your imagination. Here's what I was thinking about this film, Wayne, The Leech. Would this have occurred in the same way if it wasn't for the pandemic? Do you think the pandemic made the story more claustrophobic? It would have had to because it was filmed during tw- yeah. uh, in 2020, just an all-round great year. <laughs> <laughs> Said who? <laughs> Said absolutely nobody. But do you think in a way that kind of did work to its advantage? Because it gives it that. Because so. the whole idea with this film is about how we have this priest whose congregation is dwindling. You can do that much better if you've got barely anybody around. Exactly. And this is plumbing, you know, Eric Pernikoff's own experiences. He went to Catholic school, Wayne, 15 years. Mm. That's a long time for a religious school, isn't it? 15 years, yeah. That's, that's right through primary, right through high school. And I've got a little quote from him. He says, The story itself kind of evolved from something I'd been thinking about, which is this classic screenwriting rule that producers told me for years when I was writing things that were not so straightforward. They said, You've got to read this book called Save the Cat. In that, the lead character does something humble or nice that makes you appreciate the protagonist. 
the kind of thing of classic fashion. I said to myself that if we save the cat, so to speak, but then the cat is feral and doesn't leave the house, which makes things escalate from there. That's actually pretty much a perfect summation of I think the, so. very, the central gubbings of this film. Has Eric took that story and made it the leech? I think so. He's I essentially so. taken that and run with it because that's what I liked so much about the characters in this film. There's a great subversiveness about it because it's presenting characters you're supposed to hate. You've almost been conditioned to dislike them, but the character you're supposed to like, that person could actually be worse. And that's the subversive aspect because you didn't see that coming. Do you know where inf- the characters were influenced by? Was it people he knew at the time? No, no, I'll tell you, Wayne. And I think it's relatable to people of our generation and slightly older, the Jerry Springer show. Oh, what, like all the mad guests that appeared on there? He sees the leeches as Jerry Springer show type characters and letting them have their way with the total opposite of them. When I was a kid, in the house, there was a VHS, Wayne. The Jerry Springer show, too hot for TV. I've heard it was that. all the more salacious parts that couldn't make TV broadcast. And if you think of the Jerry Springer show, it's very nature. Imagine the stuff that we didn't get to see. And you were watching that on a VHS tape when you were younger. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I could explain some things. Do you think the Jerry Springer show kick-started kind of that tabloid reality TV? Not not let's, not people living in a house, but that kind of, you know. It could have been partly responsible for it. Whatever happened to it, he just peter out. Did they ever get into retire. trouble or something like no. the Jeremy Kyle well, show? Well, the Jeremy Kyle show because of what happened with one of the people on it. He had to. Did he kill himself? I think he did. Yeah, because or tried to kill himself. I think he did. Yeah, and he Jeremy Kyle stepped down. Result and the show went off. I mean, folk were criticizing it already. It was referred to as the the British Jerry Springer. Now here's a question, Wayne. Uh-huh. In this episode, the Leech, did you think we'd reference Jeremy Kyle? <laughs> no, I didn't think we'd come to that. Dude, I have no idea where these things are going to go. I have no idea <laughs> either. I'm going to go all over. I'm blaming you for this. Oh, well. <laughs> but but, but it is a Christmas episode. People uh. just assume we're drunk. <laughs> you may not be drunk, Wayne, or we may not be drunk. You know, we, we were sober, we have to say. But uh, Terry likes a drink in this film. Yeah, the char- the, We're sober, but the characters in the film most certainly are not. Played by Jeremy Gardner. You know, that guy we were mentioning, the, the very talent Jeremy Gardner. The guy I know, somehow vicariously vicariously <laughs> he's introduced to our lead character through quite a depressing situation because the central will go the central conceit of this film we have father david he's our lead character he's the pastor and he's played by by a guy called uh, graham skipper yeah this is what i like about these films wayne like graham skipper it's not somebody i'm familiar with but whilst i was watching this film i thought is that Zach Galifianakis for a I, second? He does, from some angles, look like Zach Galifianakis. It's the beard. It's even his voice. Yeah, he's got that kind of soft-spoken, like, soft-spoken voice. Is Zach Galifianakis playing Graham Skipper playing Father David? Wow, <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a trip. Graham Skipper actually, incidentally, found great success on stage playing Herbert West in the uh, stage adaptation of a film we've covered before, Reanimator. Everything is connecting to it our is, past episodes today. It's like we've done, what, this 42nd episode and we've already got a Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon thing Are going on. Are we going through a Christmas story theme here? <laughs> Are we having to revisit all our past sins? We've already become <laughs> we've already become self-referential. But with Pastor David, he uh, he's the pastor of this church, Father David. Priest. Yes, priest. And he's got a dwindling congregation. Very dwindling, Wayne. I alluded to earlier. It's the Christmas season, like we say, film during COVID, not many people about... Decent-sized church, but there's about five people there. No, Wayne, this church, this church in real life, did you ever wonder with the salaciousness, the, the, the depravity of this film, how they actually managed to get filming in that church? I did wonder that, actually. They told the people who run the church they were filming a faith-based doc- documentary called Helping Hands. Oh, did they? That is how they got permission to film Sneaky. in that church. Sneaky. You little <laughs> leeches. Well, do what you got to do, man. Yeah, you got to do it, man. In right, this do, economy. Do you think they ever watched the film afterwards? Like, oh, this is a Helping Hands. Sit down and have a watch. 
<laughs> you know, Father David is such a nice man. He, he's such a, or is he? Yes. Because he meets Terry, uh, who's been sleeping in this place. Because the idea is, Terry is put forward as basically a homeless guy at this point. He looks disheveled, he's got the long beard, he's got the unkempt Did you know hair. What, notice what he was wearing? It was a, was it a sleeping bag he was wearing, wearing. It was a red puffer jacket, long beard, beanie hat. What's that look like? Santa Claus? Santa Claus, Wayne. So he Santa. literally so he literally is, he's David Santa Claus. Exactly. I wonder if David even believes in, believes in Santa Terry Claus. Terry Santa Claus. So Terry Santa Claus. He's David's Terry Santa Claus. So he finds him here. David is despondent kind of at the start of the film. He's trying to be optimistic, but he's got about four or five congregation members. Yes. None of whom even give him, pay him any mind at all. Even when they're leaving and he's like, goodbye, you know, bless you. They don't even look at him. Wayne, I love <laughs> the setup of this film, right? When them congregation are flocking, they're leaving him. He finds in the back of the church, Terry sleeping, as we mentioned the clothing he was wearing. But what I liked was he says to David, Father David, he says, why don't you just leave me the keys and I'll lock it up for you? Would you, yeah, would you leave the keys to your church to a complete stranger? No. I think, again, this is kind of in-fitting with David's character because he's a very devout man. He's the whole, everybody's God's children. You know, this is my flock. And every time he meets somebody like Terry, this is just someone who's strayed from the flock. I think he genuinely does want to see the good in people, kind of for better and for worse. I think this is one of his deep character flaws. Well, he's preaching at this moment, isn't he, prior to this? He's saying, you know, this is Christmas time. It's the time of giving, the time of receiving people who you may not necessarily want. David, you've got what you wished for. Exactly. Terry is the ultimate leech. Maybe he's not expecting it would be somebody like Terry. Well, Terry is very much an oversharer. I don't think it's a secret that Terry's kept himself. Because there's a conversation in the car, because of course David takes him. He takes him in. Terry's got nowhere to go. He's been thrown out by his missus, so to speak. Terry says to him, what do you do when your ladies are all bent out of shape? Do you give her a good old chimney sweep? (laughs) (laughs) I'd never heard that expression used before. I'm I'm fairly sure David hasn't either. And what was that meaning, Wayne? A bit of hanky-panky? Bit of of hanky-panky, maybe? Bit of fornication? (laughs) Get your leg over, a bit of how's your father? Exactly, there you go. It did bring up a thing for me, what I liked so much about the characters. They work because they're realistic. We all know people like this. You've got David. He's keen to help. He's very friendly, but he's too easily pushed around by a lot of people. Then you have people like Terry who are friendly and well-meaning, but they're very overbearing and, for lack of a better term, very annoying. It just feels like this film contains kind of exaggerated versions of these real-life characteristics. And that's why it works, Wayne. We're, We're dealing with reality notched up a slight bit for the comedic aspect for the horror aspect and it's like these conversations i think are are pivotal to this film because above all this is a funny film it is scary at moments it has its you know depraved moments but it's funny it's like in that same scene when he's on about sex father david says look i'm a priest i'm celibate (laughs) terry's reply to that oh cool so you've got like both parts I know, I did like that one as well, having got like little mix-ups like that. But it's made all the more funny by the fact that a lot of these situations don't feel like they should be funny. Because for David, this is very uncomfortable. He's met this stranger who's speaking to him in this very inappropriate way. He doesn't really have the right kind of responses because they're very different people. They do not move in the same circles. No, they are far removed from one another because David's a very sheltered guy. He lives in this house alone. He has a portrait of his mother. 
who kind of casts her stern look over him. And what I thought was funny, when Terry gets into that house, he says, whoa, who's the bulldog? Yeah. Referring to the portrait of his mother. I did say, my wife and I did say at the time, that's not a very good portrait. It's pretty terrifying. I think that's the intention, Wayne. Exactly. It's, it's the got, intention. Not only do we have this, it's a big portrait. It's not hung up. It's sitting there right in his living room. It's that being under the thumb, under the eye, because right above it is his mother. It's his late mother's ashes. Wayne, mm. Norman Bates. Exactly. Everything ties back to Norman Bates. Exactly. And- I, was I was getting like Norman Bates, kind of Ed Gein vibes, that whole idea of being completely under the thumb of your mother, especially when they're not even there. That ties back to don't go in the house as well. Exactly. Which we talked about, that kind of that, that being so stuck with your mother and almost it being worse when they're not there. We're very self-referential. Pre- exactly, because their presence is always there. But here's the thing I noticed, right? Beside that portrait is his mother's ashes. In Catholicism, do you get cremated? I don't know. Unless she was like a different... She wouldn't have been a different faith. Surely she would have brought him up in the I, same I, room. That's what I was thinking. I'm not sure because you would have been... Yeah, I think the idea is you have to be bought, uh, buried... Does that demonstrate on some kind of hypocrisy? The fact that they were so strong in that faith, but they completely disobeyed it to do something like that? Or was it just a centerpiece for the film? Because it ties in later for something. Oh, it ties in later. Oh, it does. <laughs> that's one way of putting a it. A very messy way. Yeah. But another relationship that's very important for David, not just when he's one with Terry, he's one with a character called uh, Rigo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Wayne. What the fuck happened between David and Rigo? So, let, who is Rigo? Rigo is a member of David's very small congregation. He's a musical man. Uh, he records, it's like raps. Gospel rap. He does gospel raps. I can understand the whole idea. Let's try and reach the kids because we right. feel out of touch. So let's write rap. Let's do it through music. Right, I've got something here, Wayne. Yeah, and I'm going to lose too much street cred. <laughs> right, here's some verses from... You're not Rigo. actually going to rap this, are you? Absolutely not. Good. Right, here's some <laughs> verses from Rigo and his rap. Wash me in the blood, Lord, I'm a disciple. Okay. Put down the Glock, pick up a Bible. I was swimming with the sharks, no air. I'm going under. Darkness in my life, I'm blind, no Stevie Wonder. (laughs) 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 Kicking that pure heroin for the Lord. Christ, you hold the throne. I'll swing the sword. And it got me thinking. In the spirit of Christmas and all things holy. Mm. Thank God (laughs) for Terry. His metal music interrupts the scene. It does. It cuts right over the top of it. I was, were you kind of cringing but kind of laughing at the same time? It was time? too annoying even for Terry. It was, but it was that kind of out of touch thing, David thinking, because David also uses uh, social media as well. It's this trying to reach out to people because, let's be honest, he's desperate. Oh, he's yeah. losing his congregation. He needs people back in. He's found these means to do it. But it's almost that thing where... Like when we were in school, like if you had a teacher trying to talk hip, trying to talk cool, yeah. it just alienated you more. It makes it worse. It actually makes it worse because like, oh, they're trying way too hard now. Yeah. Just be a bit of a dick, please. Exactly. Just, just, just kind of be who you are. Just be a teacher. But Terry, like we said, he's got that kind of heavy, heavy metal thing going on and he plays music way too loud. Again, I knew plenty of people who of did course, that. Of course, we all did. It's that thing and when you tell them about it, they don't realise that they don't realise that they're being annoying. They don't realise it's a bad thing. They've just got irritation ingrained into them. They do. It's it's like their personality, but they never feel like they're overly bad people. They feel well-meaning because they'll still want to help you. They'll still want to do good things for you, compliment you maybe, but they just don't know where the limits are. They just push it too far. But you see in that verse, Wayne, with Riga? The bit about Stevie Wonder. Nope. <laughs> Which bit? Well, that's just insensitive. <laughs> nope. The one that says kicking that pure heroin for the Lord? Yeah. Well, Wayne, David, Rigo, found one another. 
Yeah, truck stop, bathrooms. Their relationship, it's almost like a kind of surrogate father thing because Eddie was, I'm guessing they were both at very low points. David found Rigo and kind of brought him back. From the heroin. From the heroin, That's exactly. That's heroin. That's how it starts out. But their relationship does change a lot over time. There's a lot of neglect going on, but I think it's kind of underhanded. Wayne, I am not interested in this moment of what it becomes. I'm still interested in that fucking truck stop bathroom. <laughs> Why was David in the truck stop bathroom? Hiding from Michael Myers. <laughs> Do you think there is any hint in that there was a prior relationship there? I think there could have been. Sexual? But, but that's what I like. It's just a little line. And in fact, does Terry not even bring it up later on? Terry even references it. It's like, what were you doing in a truck stop bathroom? How would you not reference that way? Exactly. You the, it, it, we need to know. It could have been innocent, but then again, the way David reacts when it's brought up, the mm-hmm. way Rigo reacts, it's clear there was more to it. And that's what... What's so interesting with David's character, he feels like a man who in the past did bad things. He feels like he has a really dark past, but in order to make up for that, he swung completely the other way. As you said, Wayne, he's a blogger as well. Mm-hmm. Are they are they like pro-life type blogs? They become more, more later on. Earlier on, it feels more like he's just um, he's just trying to get the message out of you know good ship to all men and you know bring people into your house. This is the time of year, etc. Each post only gets one like. It's from Rigo. Do you know what about his blogging hit home for us? Yeah, he looks at his computer, looks at his blog. Zero people reached. <laughs> okay, Wayne. Exactly. We've we've been in the grind, especially early on with this podcast. Mm-hmm. It can be deflated. It can be. Yeah, you put a, you put a post out. You think it's really good, really clever. Gets minimum engagement. Can be very dispiriting. In some ways, Wayne, are you saying you are David? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, the beard's coming along. The beard is coming. Yeah, on. Can I just point out a little detail here? You tell me. I love this. I only noticed this when I watched this film through second time. I thought this was so clever. We see David typing away. We see his hands on the keyboard, and we see the toolbar at the bottom of the computer. There's a symbol flashing on the screen. Did you know what symbol it was? It was the Windows security icon. Oh. That will flash if, for example, you have some kind of threat to your computer. Maybe there's a virus. Maybe something has invaded your computer. So we're all we're talking about invasion. Mm. He's being invaded in his life. His computer's potentially been invaded because Eric Penikoff did say one of the biggest themes of this film is codependency. Exactly. I I did. I love that little detail. I didn't notice it second time round. I thought, bravo to you. Great storytelling. Good, good spot there, Wayne. Good spot. That's that's what we talk about. Visual storytelling. You you can subtly implant something without being you know. Completely knocking you on the head. I know, because it's actually right at the just the periphery of the screen. I think he put it there almost like an Easter egg, like, like to see how many people notice this. Maybe I've not spent enough time on computers, Wayne. I never <laughs> noticed that. Maybe, again, because I watched it second time and I was looking around the corners of the screen. But did you notice, you know, as they ingrate themselves into David's life, and we're talking about his blogs, they get more sinister as they go, as his personality gets more sinister. And that was kind of getting me onto this, you know, as said, Penikoff says, it's about codependency. In a way, do you find that as much as Terry and Lexi annoy him, that in a way he needs them to validate his own goodness. Absolutely. In yeah. a way. By the way, yeah, Lexi is... Let's get on to Lexi. Yeah. She's an interesting character. She's the girlfriend of Terry. Is girlfriends, not fiancé, not wife. Girlfriend. girlfriend. Real life. They're real life. They're, they're, they're actually married in real life, yeah. It feels like they have somewhat a destructive relationship. She's played by Taylor Zodke. Mm-hmm. Who are, they're kind of between jobs. They're almost between homes as well, because Lexi says she's been thrown out. She does just turn up abruptly 
And Terry's like, oh, uh, yeah, this is my girlfriend, Lexi. David's like, okay, you were going to tell me about this when? <laughs> well, in this film, in an earlier scene, there is a woman, an unknown woman at the time, who's in the confessional. Mm. And she's saying she's pregnant, she's got a lousy partner, etc. She's kicked him out, but she's pregnant. Who would turn up at that doorway in? But Lexi. But Lexi, yes. Interestingly, because we hear this person speaking, we hear the details, but we never actually see them. But I would like to talk about what you said there, absolutely about him almost needing them, because David, as well as you know, being a man who's gone through all these things, he does have a certain arrogance and superiority, especially the way he treats Terry and Lexi. Because yes, he brings them in, welcome to my home, you can use my home, but in a lot of ways he does really condescend to them. He even mentions their bad ways and even talks about saving them at one point. That point you made is one, it kind of is one of the cons to the film for me. Mm. There was too many religious platitudes. Did you find after a while it felt like you were plumbing the same well? Bit repetitive, yeah. When it could have, you know, they could have took that time to more character development, more, you know, let's get into the zaniness. Yeah, it, <laughs> it just felt like too much preaching sometimes. Sometimes the film did feel a bit too much not on the nose because i think it's kind of deliberately meant to be on the nose but the fact it's keep constantly bringing up these platitudes over and over again i do like when it develops and they get more sinister but sometimes a bit of repetition not necessarily to the movie's benefit do you think though. the craziness could have been introduced a little earlier possibly yes because the, film, because the film does get properly crazy like <sighs> listening to talking now you think it's just all sermons and stuff like that but no it does get properly crazy later on do you know when it gets crazy never have i ever is this a game in the uk the first time I heard about it was in an episode of Lost, so 2004-05, but I did actually play it at university. It is quite good fun. Oh, you fun. did actually play it? Yeah, I played it when I was over in um, Australia as well. Hopefully you never got drunk as David gets. <laughs> Has anyone ever been as drunk as David gets? I hope you didn't have the experiences <laughs> David had either. No, no, nowhere near Okay, that. so let's talk about the Never Have I Ever, because Lexi's came into this life. There's Lexi, there's Terry, and there's Father David. They're all living as one now. Lexi and... Terry, you know, they're kind of at odds with each other, but they're very much the same people. They're loud, they're abrasive, they don't know people's boundaries. Yeah. But there's no pretense with them because it feels like David's pretending to be something he's not. With them two, there isn't. They are kind of annoying, but it doesn't ever feel like they're pretending they're anybody other than that. So are you saying, in a way, you actually like Terry and Lexi more than David? Well, I think that's one of the film's strengths. As it goes on, you do change Back and your, forth. you do change your perception like do i like this person more do i like this person more the person we're supposed to like you actually kind of start to detest but are you supposed to like david in a sense yeah maybe you're supposed to respect him more than like him like i think terry and lexi do they respect his his position as well but if you abuse that position that position of power you have if you fuck with a 40, they don't like it, do they? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But they're playing Never Have I Ever, which is something obviously David doesn't want to do because, again, we get the feeling David was maybe a substance abuser at some point and he's completely cut that out. Well, Terry likes his coke. He does. Lexi likes her booze. Terry also likes booze. <laughs> okay, it starts out quite innocuous, this game. Yeah. For example, Never Have I Ever rang a doorbell. Mm. So, of course, you would all have a drink there. You know, one of the pivotal things and one of the most weirdest things of this scene, Wayne, is what you find out. Apparently, mm. Lexi found out through this game that her uncle Begus eats ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you actually play this with family? You wouldn't play this with family members, would yeah, you? Yeah, that's a bit, yeah. Seems kind of messed up. I have seen people play this game just as a way of poking fun at each other. Someone like, never have I ever. They'll look directly at someone and say, do this. Like, well, you know I've done that. They're trying to just get you drunk. Exactly. They're trying to open up your inhibitions. Exactly. Another interesting little bit of visual storytelling. Did you know? notice the receptacles they were drinking out of? Terry and Lexi both have clear glasses, but David's has a ceramic mug. 
So the Terry and Lexi, it's clear glasses. They're transparent. They're easy to see into. But David, more opaque and hidden, like you don't know as much about them. Well, this is what you were saying a second ago. The For as annoying as Terry and Lexi are, they're very off the cuff. You know them. Yeah. They are relatable in a way, in a way. Let's not let's not go overboard. <laughs> but, you know, it's people we all know. We don't necessarily all know a priest, that kind of forbidden world. And as you said, the clear glasses and almost the goblet of what's David's drinking out of. It's like a like a ceramic it's like a Christmassy ceramic yeah. mug. It's all jolly and happy. It's visually telling them apart. But also this scene plays out in front of the portrait of his mother, which I think is visual importance because it's it's showing you how under the thumb he is, even though she's not there, and how even in these times of frivolity, she's still casting a judgment over his actions. I think even at this stage, he's still almost kind of judging himself because he feels like he doesn't have to, but is he worried he won't be a good host? Because he's so paranoid about not being a good host and not showing good hospitality. You know, what would Jesus do? Bring me your sick and your poor, etc. So it's like he feels he's kind of pushed into this situation, playing this game, because I think, yeah, there's information he doesn't want to give out, but the more you drink, the more your inhibitions loosen, you're going to say something you didn't mean to say. But it's not just the drink, Wade, because Terry turns the portrait of his mother so she can no longer see this game. And as soon as he turns that portrait, he starts down in the drinks. And Terry says, oh, I see. As soon as mum is away, David comes out to play. Very, very true. So here's the thing, right? When you when you see these people who are quite very straight-laced, very repressed in a sense... Is it because if they were to let themselves go, they couldn't control that? They would be too out of control. They'd be too wild. And they need some exterior force to you know to, to rail that in. And when you remove that, their real self comes out. Yeah, I think so. Because you can assume they've never been like that their whole lives. Maybe they've had something happen and they've sworn off this, I'll never do this again. But then when they're brought into, let's say, temptation... Because I think, thematically, that is what Terry and Lexi represent. I think they personify, like, David's demons. And this is where he's being haunted and kind of confronted by them. He's trying to conquer his demons, but he can't. They're right there with him, and they're kind of tempting him in, because obviously he wants to portray this image of being a very holy man, of being someone very righteous, you know, a good man of the cloth. But something like this is happening, and it's slipping out. He's becoming more impulsive, and he actually starts to shout some really horrible things at them. And then Terry and Lexi are quite taken aback by. Well, we kind of start descending to madness during this game when we're revealing things through Never Have I Ever, but also Lexi lets him puff on a vape. She says, it's all right, there's no nicotine in it. Terry says, after he's puffed, should we tell him that's not a cigarette? What do you think that is? What is it opium? Yeah, could you get like a could you get like a weed vape? Would weed make him go that crazy though? Maybe. Well, he's had all this drink already, and he's probably not used to weed. Well, he might be used to weed. Again, we don't know because we don't know that much about his past. But it's a full descent into hell, Wayne. It is. This is like proper proper third act lunacy. This like this is when like the gates of hell have sprung open for lack of a better term. One of the weirdest things in this scene, and which I didn't see coming, it was a great left ball. Terry was actually is actually turned on by David. When did, I never saw that coming. I'm guessing it's implied by this, like, Terry is bisexual. I get the idea that they like to experiment because they've even said at one point they have, like, kind of kinky costumes where, was it Lexi will dress up like a police officer who's arresting Terry. Cops and robbers. Cops and robbers. Very we much, see a scene, Wayne. Yeah. We see a scene. They're Who? very much into the role play. It feels like they have, Terry and Lexi have no inhibitions anyway, but David has to do a lot of drinking to let his down. I think it's just the characteristics they have is everything David's not, or David doesn't want to 
to be, more importantly. David may be them. Him and Rigo, you know, I'm still on the fence about them. Yeah, I'm not really sure what's going on with that them. That truck stop bathroom. You know. <laughs> exactly. How did it start? Because as we kind of... Rigo pops up kind of periodically yeah. throughout the film. Yeah. And as the film goes on, as David's kind of sense of sanity deteriorates, so does his relationship with Rigo. It actually turns kind of hostile. He goes from not really caring that much about him to almost rejecting him. And Rigo has to remind him, like you've got no congregation, like, I'm all you have. <laughs> in a sense, he kind of is. He's the only person who's turning up there regularly. They've only got each other. Yeah, unless you can't count, you know, Terry sleeping there in his Santa costume. Would you take a Terry in? Take a Terry in, ugh, for a very brief spell of time. Really? After watching this film, you'd still yeah. take him in? Well, I, I'm talking earlier in the film, Terry. I'm not talking third act Terry. <laughs> Nobody wants a third act Nobody Terry in Lexi third act house. David. No, no, just, no one doesn't want any of this. Like you say, this is where we go kind of full crazy. This is where, do you think aesthetically the film starts to look like the box cover? Yes. It does, I yeah. think so. It's like Dante's Inferno. We're going to that descent into hell. You know, we've gone from David, the, the repressed priest, to full on anal assault. <laughs> 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 That's appropriate. That is something that happens. But what's good is this is a scene where David, Terry, and Lexi are completely off their asses. We get this scene where he goes it's in. It's very hallucinatory. Yeah, it's Ter very psychedelic yeah. way. He goes into Terry and Lexi's room. The cops playing, and robbers. They're playing the cops and robbers. Terry has a face full of cocaine. He's laughing his ass off. And Lexi is sodomizing Sodomizing him. Yeah, she's got a mask on. Brings him in because she puts his, her hand up, brings him in. Yep. Again, we don't know if this happened. This just could be a bad dream. No, because we do... He does wake up in his own bed. Yeah, we have that kind of... In all Hollywood movies, everyone wakes up from a nightmare. They kind of jerk up. Okay, you know once he wakes up... <laughs> yeah. After that madness, mm. he's saw the, the sodomizing of Terry by yeah. Lexi. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. He wakes up, Wayne. I, I think this is one of the best lines in the film, right? He meets Terry. Mm. Terry hands him back his priest collar. Okay, this is the most bluntest line in the film. He's like, oh, I didn't know my, my priest collar was missing. Terry says to him, you took it off right before we fucked. <laughs> <laughs> what I like is, you know how early he talked about, you know, doing some, some like chimney sweeping, how he used euphemisms. Yes. And I was like, oh yeah, we fucked earlier and I took your collar. Do you know why that's a good euphemism, the chimney sweep? Mm, why is that? Santa comes down the chimney. <laughs> he does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's very seasonal. Do you think Terry considered that time? Does Terry, does Terry seem like a very Christmassy man to you? It's a party way. Yeah. He'd like any time you can drink before noon. I think so. This is kind of the only... In the third act, this is about the only hint of daylight we've seen because most of this movie takes place at night. There's a lot of, you'd agree, darkness in this well, film. It's, it's in the house, isn't it? It's a very dark and yeah. musty house. That's what I liked as well. You notice how pretty much none of the ceiling lights are on. Pretty much every room at night is just lit by lamps. It's like even when the house has light in it, it's still dark. It's got that creepy campfire look about it. Everyone's kind of sitting around, just a, just a bit of light on the faces, but most of the rooms are just pitch black. It's going for that Hammer Horror aesthetic, isn't it? I think so. And maybe David needs the light. Exactly. Because he's as, as the film gets darker, he's straying further from the light. Well, as we said, his blog posts, they yeah. turn more militant. He, he wants direct action now. He, yeah. he no longer thinks his sermons cut it. I don't think Rigo's sharing those posts anymore. And what, <laughs> wait, did you take it? Was it unexpected when uh, Rigo just said, motherfucker? Yeah, that did seem very out of nowhere. What, was that the heroin Rigo back? Possibly, yes. yes. The, uh, <laughs> heroin and Stevie Wonder Rigo's come yep. back. Because it's kind of the relationship breaks off there. That's that's pretty much that thing dissolved. Because David is just, he's losing his mind. These demons, like I say, these demons coming into his house, leading him into temptation. It's like he's being tested here and he's failing that test. Because there is a confrontation. 
David's, you know, he, he gets a little out of sorts. <laughs> you could say that, I suppose. Yeah. He kind of chastises them in not so nice words. He calls Lexi some word. Mm-hmm. Terry's like, don't talk to my woman like that. Terry beats him to a pulp. I like the visuals of this. After he beats him, after that whole carry on, we see David bandaged in his church, mm-hmm. mumbling to himself. He turned into a monster there, doesn't he? He looks he like becomes a, the monster. He looks like a literal monster. He's even filmed in the dark. He's shot from a low angle. Everything is done to make him look like a monster. He looks like a badly made up mummy, just like sitting in the church, kind of spewing this stuff. Terry sat there relaxed. It's just everything is it's going to hell. Again, like you say, I feel like this is the Dante thing descending through the, the circle descent. through the circles of hell. So do we start off what heaven first? Him and his church is all peaceful. If we're going by the Dante's Inferno euphemism, it's peaceful, it's tranquil to a point. That's the heaven. We descend into purgatories, took these people in. It's not necessarily where he wants to be, but he thinks he's helping. It gives him purpose. The last act is the Inferno. It's hell. It's the descent into madness. This is where all morals are out the window. Now even David has been transformed. He's a literal monster in a sense. He's bandaged. He's, he's marked by them. Yeah, and you say a literal monster, he's having hallucinations. Now, one moment he looks out his window, he has a vision of himself with an axe decapitating both Terry and Lexi. And does he not just bury them in the garden? Because it's like he's looking out on him doing this. Is he having a premonition, maybe? Is he fantasizing? Is he thinking, this is what I need to do? I think so. Maybe he needs to expunge the evil from his home, and this is the only way he can do it. Do you think the evil always resided in David? I think so. As it does all men. Uh, Yes, I think it has followed him. I think he has been wearing this time you think like a false cloak of righteousness like he wears this he gives he gives terry and lexi couples therapy but it's just like an excuse for him to condescend you need to do this you need to make up and terry seems to take it better to lexi lexi almost kind of sees through this well he even dresses them up in prim and proper clothing at one he's almost trying to mold them in his image he makes them burn their bondage gear is that just because he doesn't want any flashbacks? Yeah, you can get a couple of bucks from that. Well, but he burns the bondage gear. Well, you're offering to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm offering to sell them to other, some other sucker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, can I just point out one of my favourite moments from the film? comes in this third act. Like you say, there's been fights. Terry beat Lexi up at one point. Does she not say, oh, he put me in my place? Well, did he not elbow her back? I think something like that, yeah, because yeah, you can see her when nose. He's, when he's punching open. poor Dave. Yeah, it's David at his very lowest moment. He's on his knees, he's praying for guidance. Oh, this is good. Yes, there's a cross on his wall, yep. as there is in a lot of walls. It turns into a pair of guns crossed over. Do you know what I liked so much about that scene and that image? It's not an effigy. It literally happens. God literally gives him weapons. <laughs> These guns turn up and they're like, does he not open a Bible and there's two shotgun cartridges in there? I love that. Uh-huh. <laughs> God is literally sending him weapons. Does even God hate Terry and Lexi? I think so. I think even God's tired of them. No, he, he witnessed that whole sodomy thing. He's like, no, no not no. having that. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah. Do they, they even reference yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah? At we one can't point. have Sodom and Gomorrah again. Exactly. You don't want Old Testament God coming back. He's like, he's like, it's Sodom and Gomorrah, only a little more Sodom. He actually <laughs> brags about that. So he sends these guns down. God sends these guns down and this cartridge. That is great iconography, though. It is. It's fantastic. From the the cross changing into the guns, the crossed guns. Okay. Is that any kind of comment on, you know, the Bible Belt in America, the whole guns and God thing? Oh, like, you know, you can't take our Bible, you can't take our guns. Exactly. Possibly. Do you think that's where it's kind of influenced by? Maybe. Because these are Florida filmmakers, like Jeremy Gardner, for example. So do you think, in a way, and, you know, Florida is quite a religious state. Yeah, it's in the Bible Belt, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's... I think there's maybe a comment there, Wayne. There could be, yes. 
and especially the fact that the guns are being sent by God because they talk about how about being religious and wanting to have you know we need our weapons to defend ourselves yeah I think it could tie into that because you say about Penikoff he got a lot of this from his childhood yeah I think that's where a lot of it could come from don't fuck with a man and his guns <laughs> especially a man who was a giant portrait of his mother in his front room especially not oh what happened to the ashes? Did oh, we get around okay. to what happened to the ashes? Was it, te- was it Terry or Lexi that broke them? Uh, well, one of them broke them. Yeah. They said it, so it was an accident, and he's like, well, just get a brush and a... Du- get a brush. <laughs> like, get a, does one of them not offer to put it in like another jar or something yes. like that? Like, it's not the same thing. Just brush up, Mama. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, Mother fell over, just brush her up yeah. over there. But uh, what happens is, uh, this is this was for me like, oh, wow. This was a proper wow moment where one of them, was it Terry, ended up snorting the mother's ashes, like actually snorting them up. To be fair, David did take his cocaine away. So he didn't have anything else hey, to snort. You can't take a man's drugs. You can't take you his guns. Can't. You can't take his drugs. Guns, drugs, and <laughs> ashes, apparently. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought this was America. Fuck yeah. <laughs> it's with these delusions that he actually becomes, in his own eyes, David, the holy crusader, doesn't he? He becomes an ev- a holy avenger. And, be- and with these hallucinations, he sees Terry at the door. He imagines it's Terry at the door. He can't take this anymore. He's beaten him to death. He beats him to death. Who does that turn out to be? Rigo. And then Terry's very sympathetic. He's like, oh, he's like, oh, you beat the motherfucker up. Or he's like, oh yeah, that motherfucker's dead. No, do you know what I like? What he, what he actually says? What? He's dead as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, there's dead, and then there's dead as fuck. That's just a little bit further along. But here's he, here's the thing, and, and you know how we're talking about ingrained evil, the corruption of the soul. They think Rigo's dead. David takes him out into the back garden. I think he's going to bury him or burn him. Okay. Yeah. He gets the axe at him. Rigo is still alive. He's still breathing. But even with this information. David still decapitates him. So what does that say about David? Do you think he's just too far along? Is it just saying that, yeah, this guy has made this kind of full transition into... The monster. Into Has monster. he become what he always yeah. feared? Because I think what happens is, see, if he lets Rigo live, Rigo knows what's happened. Rigo can tell somebody, there goes the last of David's fragile reputation. So he has to go. And them guns, Wayne, they come into the story. Those guns from God. The God guns. God guns. Sounds like another film, that, doesn't God it? God guns. Probably is a real yeah. thing. Because yeah, he turns the guns on Terry and Lexi, but he has two cartridges, and there's three of them. Well, technically four, because this is where we found out that Lexi's actually pregnant. Yes. Because she's obviously, been pregnant the whole time. Because we had that, interestingly, we had that confession thing earlier. It turns out maybe that wasn't actually Lexi, because it happened more recently. So Terry's like, could be your baby, it could be mine. Ooh. <laughs> She had a big baby bump, though. She had a very big baby bump. I think it's How much is up. that the hallucination? I think it is because it's pulsing, isn't it? It's kind it's of pulsing. Going, it's kind of going it's up oscillating. Mm, it's oscillating. Ve- this is what I like about the third act. You don't know what is fact or fiction. You don't know what if what we're seeing is literal or if it's you know the mindset now of David. Much of what we've seen since the Never Have I Ever seen, which is where he really succumbed to those demons, we have no idea what it is. This could all have been a hallucination. Maybe some scenes in the day did happen. But scenes like this, you have no idea what's going on. It's just crazy. It's insanity. But Wayne, a gun, two cartridges, three people. Mm-hmm. Okay? Two shells. Who does he take? He takes... Terry, we know that. One more shot. We'll find that out, because who runs out the door? It's Lexi walking out the Lexi door. Lexi walks out the door. We're kind of left not to see that. It's very heavily implied what actually happened. Well, I'm assuming, very heavily, David shot Terry. David shot you. Then he shot himself. And then, you know, she comes out cradling her bump. She's the lone survivor, Wayne. Why do you think it's Lexi that survives? I think it is because she was pregnant. I think David has seen this as on maybe this is going to be the next generation of warriors or whatever. So Do you think it's possibly live. his baby? It could be. 
Because, well, there is a way of knowing, but we're not going to find this out in the third act. No. <laughs> a third act we're not even sure is really happening. Possibly, maybe not. Because we end that way. Yeah, because we walks out, that's the end of the film. It's exactly 82 minutes long, which is exactly the same length as uh, Sadistic Intentions. <laughs> the same length? Exactly the same length. Do you think he planned it to be exactly the same length? I hope so. It's kind of strange, though. I hope he did. That would actually make sense. It would, actually, yes. I don't know why, it just would. But like I say, that is where the film ends. And Did you do like a kind of big... Who breath out at that because of just how tense that third act was. It was a great third act. It was do you almost act. wish it had gone crazier earlier though? Possibly, yeah. Like you said. Or did you like the containment? Did you like the slow build up? I think that having the never have I ever seen being the kind of end yeah. of the build up, that was a good choice. Well, that's but maybe the, you could have moved that earlier. The never have I ever seen is pretty much the midway point. It's the turning point in the film where we go from, you know, the reserved, etc., into the full out cacophony of fuckery. Yeah, and that brings us to the end. I thought this was a fantastic film. This was a great film. I thought it was a really, really strong film. As I said, there's a slight issue. The constant platitudes wore thin a little bit, but I could see what they're trying to do. I could see the intention of the film. I like how it harkened back. It almost felt like a video nasty. In a sense, yes. It felt really good. It felt really, you know, sinister. Mm -hmm. It uses humour well, and I think that's what propels the film. It is the humour. You can. It is the tension as well. It is the horror aspect. But more than anything, it's seeing almost this odd couple situation of two or three people that shouldn't be in each other's company and how they're going to manage. And the humour and the scenarios that come from that is very... It's done very well, it's done very effectively, and it's making me want to check out Penikoff's other films. I've already saw some of Jeremy Gardner's, and I really like them, and now I really want to see some of Penikoff's. Yeah, I, I do as well. The characters are exaggerated, but they don't feel like caricatures. The build-up is really good. I enjoy the subversion of the characters of, do I like this one, do I like this one? Where the story goes. Again, just the general insanity. How beautiful the film looks, even when it's crazed. I think that's the idea. It's kind of glossing up this descent into hell. There was a review on Letterboxd which called it, I like this, a low-budget, unhinged, dildo-burning, yuletide fun. All of them <laughs> things happen. All of those things happen. That is someone who's seen the movie and really appreciates it. That's a great review. That is that's, Straight to the point. That's pretty much better than I could have ever summed it up. You don't have to anyway. mess around with any, you know, pontificating. Mm -mm, no, that's exactly what the film is. And I think, yeah, Pennykoff had a very clear vision of what he wanted to do. And I think, you know, on a low budget, in such a difficult time to make movies with such a small cast, I think he pulled it off beautifully. Very, very well, Wayne. And I think this could almost be some of the future of cinema. I can see Eric Penikoff being a staple or continuing to be a staple within the horror community. I think he's going to go on to good work. I, I can see him having a Ty West-like career where he's not necessarily as a name household, but his films are going to, at one point, break through into the mainstream. He's a very good talent. So, if it wasn't already obvious enough, in Film We Trust, I would say two recommendations for The Leech. Absolutely. That is a wrap, Wayne. That is our first Christmas special. How does that feel? That feels great. In terms of podcasting, putting out episodes, it has been a hell of a year. And for everybody listening, thank you for coming along on this sleigh ride with us. From In Film We Trust, we hope you all have a Merry Christmas. We hope your family, yourself and your friends have a blast. But most importantly, this Christmas, don't fuck with a priest. <laughs>